Hello and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in the Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, or we hope to be again sometime soon. Everything we do as a church is, as with most of the rest of life, currently happening online. We're not all in the same circumstances, but these days are not easy for most of us, so please know that we're here for you if you need any spiritual or emotional support at all. The Holy Spirit is not held back by coronavirus, and this current teaching series is our response to what we believe he's saying to us as a church. To expect more. God is at work, and he is powerful. We're praying that your faith, for his presence and power in your own life, will be raised as you listen today. Hello, welcome everyone. It's great to have you with us, and we have a new backdrop. We're in a new room. Isn't that exciting? If you are listening on the podcast, you obviously can't see this. Let me describe it to you. We have a sort of piece of Craigslist uh, mid-century modern furniture. We have a uh, Marmite picture. And uh, just behind me, some travel books, uh, city guides from the turn of the century. So if, as I'm sure you have been wondering, where did people go out to eat and drink in Prague in 2001, we can tell you. Uh, It's great, isn't it? It's a whole change of scene and we've, I think, learned that during the pandemic it's the little wins that you need. Just keep stacking up the little wins like a change of scene and everything will be okay. We are right next to the kitchen and the dishwasher is on, so if you can hear a sort of low rumbling in the background, that's that, and you might hear a beep uh, a little bit later. You know, it's all for free. You're welcome. Anyway, enough of that. We are at the end of our series on the miracles of Jesus. And I think it's been such a helpful set of talks for us to hear at this time. I've certainly very much enjoyed them, particularly the ones that I've written. But amidst everything that else is going on, and let's admit there's quite a lot going on right now, isn't there? It's great to be reminded of what we have as Christians at our disposal. It's not just a hope in a belief system or a hope in a way of living. It's a hope in an infinite power. And this power was displayed at one moment in space and time in history at Calvary and at Easter, but it's also now, because of that moment, available to us here during a pandemic in 2020 in Los Angeles for all of us who open ourselves to it. And there is nothing like the power of God, nothing that comes close to it. It heals physical ailments. It sets us free from our past. It uh, rewires us emotionally and psychologically, healing those scars that we may have experienced during our lives. It uh, restores relationships with people that we might never think that we could be restored to. And as we will look at today, it also, you know, raises people from the dead. Nothing quite like it. And as I said, by the grace of God, this power, it is ours. So can I encourage us, and this from whatever Christian church background you um, have, can I encourage us not to be scared of Jesus' power? I know anything that is out of our control can make us uh, feel a little apprehensive. And the power of God is, let's be clear, very much out of our control. But firstly, this sense of control that we sometimes have is actually always just an illusion, as I think the pandemic has kind of made clear. It's not really, we're not really in control. But secondly, 
the Christian faith is really about giving up control as much as we can to him. And in fact, the paradox is the more that we give up control, the more that we go against our instincts, the freer that we become, the more we are able to live the lives we have been given. So, in fact, I don't think there's been a better time to cast off our apprehension about Jesus. Now, when our need of him and his power is so strikingly clear, let's throw ourselves onto him, trusting in his goodness and his love and asking him to fill us with his power. And with all of that in mind, let's then hear our final miracle of Jesus, his miraculous power over death, uh, as read by Angel, and this is from Luke chapter 7. Luke 7, 11 through 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bear stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Thank you very much, Angel. So this is actually only one of six instances of resurrection in the whole Bible. It's one of the three that Jesus performs, the others being raising Lazarus and Jairus' daughter. There is, of course, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, also in the Gospels. In Acts, Dorcas is raised by Peter, and there are two in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha, easy to confuse. They both resurrect a widow's son. So, resurrection is actually relatively rare. And I would love to give you countless stories of both experiencing uh, people being resurrected and also resurrecting people myself, but I can't because I haven't. However, I do know that Hannah's cousin, who is a friend of ours and we know pretty well, has seen resurrection happen. Uh, he was a um, missionary to Burundi for a long time, and in his community, people were raised from the dead. And I have no reason to doubt that he's actually telling the truth when he tells these stories. And if you would like to, I can send you his blog. It's quite an incredible thing, not just of story of resurrection, but also of God's power being seen over and over again. It will blow your mind. But nevertheless, in the Bible, and I think actually throughout church history, pretty rare. Rare, but not impossible. Which, of course, shouldn't be difficult for us to believe, given that, you know, our whole faith is based on a resurrection. What is striking, though, and I think really the point that we have these stories in uh, the Bible, is that the accounts of these resurrections are actually strikingly similar. And I think that is for a reason. Death is our greatest enemy. It remains that which unites every single human being who has ever lived and will ever live. Every single one of us will at some point die. And so then it stands to reason that the power over death is the greatest of all powers. It wins the ultimate victory. And what these strikingly similar accounts of resurrection show so clearly is the nature of God's ultimate power over death. It's kindness and it's unmeritedness and it's power, obviously, but power in so many different ways which we will get onto.
because this is what I really want to talk about today, is the nature of God's power. Because the more we know of God's power, the more we will trust it. And the more we will trust it, the more we will open ourselves to it, and therefore the more we will experience it and in turn help others experience it too. And really this is kind of our job, Hannah's and mine, Alice's, our church, is to help us all experience more of God's power. Because it's it, that power that changes us and that power that changes the world. But before we got into it, I actually want to take a step back. Let us, as we begin, talk more about death. Let's talk about death and let's talk about lament and let's talk about grief and let's talk about loss. Now, I know that sounds utterly depressing. Who wants more depressing right now? I think we've got enough depressing, thank you very much. But I actually don't think it needs to be depressing or at least not that depressing. We'll see. Because we do need to actually talk about death and this stands the test of very basic logic because without death there cannot be any resurrection. That's obvious, isn't it? So we've got to. And of course, right now, it's not like we don't have lots of reasons to be feeling these sorts of feelings of loss and grief and lament. There's a global pandemic, there's a global economic crisis, there are race riots and police brutality and vigilante killings and looting and destruction and wildfires and mass unemployment and people have lost their livelihoods and people have lost their homes and people have lost their families and their friends and of course lots of people have lost their children. There is a lot going on that we need to lament of, we need to grieve and we need to actually take seriously the loss. So I think the issue is not really whether we are going to experience these feelings or not. It's actually what we're going to do with these feelings and where we're going to put them that's very important for us right now. And I think there are two traps that we need to avoid. The first trap is trying to avoid these very real feelings altogether. The second trap is the, the other end of the extreme is to indulge them. Now, on the one hand, no one wants to feel negative feelings, do they? So for many, I think, and I would put myself in this camp, the usual knee-jerk reaction is to try and pretend that they don't exist. And you can see this throughout culture at the moment, things like, oh, there is no pandemic, it's all a hoax, or no, there's no racism in this country. This is basically the idea that everything's going to be fine. Now, everything may be fine, or it may not. That's not the point. The point is, right now, things are not fine. And when we bury our heads in the sand, doing what we can to not engage with the pain that is either ours or our societies or the people that we know and care about, we actually stop being true to ourselves and we stop being true to the world and we stop being actually authentic and authentic parts of uh, history and what's going on. And this, not being real, not being authentic, will always stop the flow of God's healing, resurrecting power. Because without acknowledging the death, there can be no resurrection. And, you know, churches are not immune from having done this as well, lurching straight into, I think you may have seen this at the beginning of the pandemic, it's revival, here it comes. Now, I love revival, I would like to see revival, I pray for a revival, it would be great if revival comes. Let us all focus on that. Any instance of people meeting the real Jesus and having their life transformed needs to be celebrated and we should be seeking this at all times. However, 
doing that, lurching straight into that without actually lamenting, without actually acknowledging in real terms the loss and the pain that's going on here, will not actually make the death go away. It will not make the loss just magically disappear. But when we do acknowledge it, by contrast, then it can be resurrected. Then life can come out of death. Which is all to say that I haven't been very good at lamenting. I haven't been very good at grieving and just accepting uh, and acknowledging the loss that's going on. We um, have been getting to know these people uh, who live just around the corner. And um, before the pandemic, we were seeing them now and again. And it was one of those um, kind of relationships where we're thinking, I, I think I really like these people. When you're um, married, I think you become a little bit more um, attuned to having both sides of a couple be very important. Because there's lots of something you can get on with one side and not the other side, but that just makes all kind of meetings a bit more difficult. When there are you like the husband and the wife, that's really great. And this was one of those things. It was like, this is going to be a great relationship. I'm excited about this. And then the pandemic hit and we obviously didn't see them for a while. And now, what have they done? They've gone and left town, left Los Angeles. And my immediate reaction was, how dare they? Selfish, horrible people. I know, exposing my heart here. How did they not even think of us? They're just cowards, that sort of thing. For me, being angry and judgmental so much easier than being sad. But now what I realise is actually you've just got to grieve that. And the thing is when we do grieve, we can join in the grief of uh, these other people too. I can join in their loss. They are leaving behind relationships far more established, far more meaningful than my relationship with them. They are leaving behind careers and lives and schools and all that. And acknowledging that, acknowledging our pain and the pain of others, is something that actually brings us together. So, let us avoid avoidance, shall we? Because when I can actually grieve that loss, I can ask God to resurrect it, to bring other lives, to restore those friendships that have gone by the wayside. We need to avoid avoidance, but so too the other end of the spectrum. We obviously need to avoid those feelings dominating us. It's so easy to do, particularly right now, isn't it? But when we do so, our feelings become our God. And very quickly, there's no room for the real God because our feelings are taking up all that space. So there's no room for him and there's no room for his resurrection power to take those losses, to take our grief and to take our mourning and turn it into something beautiful, life and joy, to resurrect them into something wonderful. Because fear and anxiety have taken the place of trust and faith. There is a uh, Native American story that uh, is pretty well known, I think. And I think it can be easily translated to our Christian context. A father tells his young child that in each of us there lives this good beast and this evil beast and these animals are constantly uh, at war with each other and we might say along with the Apostle Paul there is this battle within all of us between the flesh and the spirit. The young child asks his father well which beast is going to win and the father replies whichever one you feed 
So just as we need to be brave and choose not to avoid our feelings of loss, let's also refuse to feed them and indulge them so that they take over. Instead, let us feed the spirit of the living God and allow him in his power to fill us. So then, having said all that, what does this power look like? So that knowing what it looks like, we can better trust it and we might actually allow it to fill us more and more. Well, firstly, the resurrection power of Jesus is incredibly kind. It isn't just his power, it's actually his love. The two cannot be separated. Verse 13. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Jesus' heart went out to her. And Jesus' heart goes out to you. Whatever sense of loss or grief you're currently confronted with, Jesus' compassion flows from his hands, flows from his face and his eyes and his smile, and it flows to you because he loves you. His heart is going towards you right now. Now, one of the things I have a problem with, with the sort of um, showman tele-evangelist genre of Holy Spirit power, and before I carry on with this, I need to acknowledge, God will use everything. You know, he can even use someone like me, he can even use someone like you, incredible. And he uses everything. I know, actually, someone who was healed by touching the screen of the tele-evangelist when they were told to do so. And uh, Hannah, in her youth, she was taken to um, one of these huge 100,000 people, smoke machines, big lights, big show, uh, waving jacket over his head type thing. She's kind of conned into it. Uh, she went to one of those and someone stepped out of a wheelchair. So let us not be too dismissive of anything that is done in Jesus' name. As Paul says, I just rejoice however the gospel is preached. But one of the problems I have with it is that when it comes to um, modelling ourselves on Jesus, it looks quite unlike Jesus, mainly from the starting point of compassion. There doesn't seem to be a lot of compassion. There seems to be a lot of wham, bam, thank you, ma'am type stuff. Jesus, though, always, always, always starts with deep, deep compassion. When uh, Jesus is first confronted by a leper in Mark 1, the text says that he was moved, moved with compassion in his heart. And then later on, he sees the whole crowd of people coming with their sick and their lame to the shore while he's in the boat and he gets out. And again, it says he's filled with compassion for them. When he raises Jairus' daughter, it says that he holds her hands, this tender moment of love and care. And he calls to her in the most uh, kind of intimate ways, Talitha Kum, my little girl, rise, stand up. And uh, similarly, Elijah, when he raises um, the widow's son in 1 Kings 17, it says that he actually stretches himself out over the boy, this sort of sign of um, deep grief and compassion and love for this boy and uh, his mother. And of course, most famously, the shortest verse in the whole Bible, Jesus wept. He weeps, even though he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He weeps 
because everyone else is weeping. And it is, of course, a, a, a weeping of um, anger and anguish at the horribleness of death, and death really is horrible. But it's also a weeping of compassion and grief and love. There goes the dishwasher. So the idea that Jesus exists on this sort of spiritual plane, floating in some kind of zen-like uh, attitude, two feet above the earth, not really troubling himself with all the horrible muckiness of us down here, but just sort of coasting through life, has got very, very little, in fact, it's got nothing to do with the Jesus of the Gospels. He is fully involved. He is fully invested and he is full of compassion. It's the starting point for everything he does. So when we're praying for healing, when we are praying for anyone, for anything, the starting point must be love for people. Hannah um, has actually banned me from using this example. Uh, I'm going to do it anyway, so you know, that didn't work. But she's banned me because it's so cheesy. It's kind of 20 years out of date. You may well have heard it over and over again in youth groups from about 2001. And it may be that you just weren't even born by the time that this uh, film was uh, released, 1997. It is goodwill hunting, I know. But the famous scene uh, is Matt Damon finally opening up to Robin Williams about um, the child abuse that he suffered in his youth. And um, it's this famous scene of Robin Williams kind of walking towards him through this room, um, telling him over and over again, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's not your fault. And as he's doing it, um, Matt Damon becomes more and more emotional until they finally come together and they uh, hug. And um, for the first time, Matt Damon just weeps and lets it all out. The reason that scene is so powerful, even if a bit cheesy now. But the reason it's so powerful is because uh, there is identification between Robin Williams's character and Matt Damon's character because Robin Williams has just told him that he also suffered child abuse, that he was beaten. And this is where the power lies because Robin Williams's character knows what it's like. He knows what the pain is like, and he has huge compassion on someone who has suffered similarly. Now, in becoming a human being, Jesus fully identifies with all of us in all our weakness. And it means that he knows your pain. He knows what we are suffering he knows what we are feeling and what we feel has been taken from us. He knows it. He knows the stuff that we might not be able to tell anyone else in the whole world. And just as his heart goes out to this woman and to her lost son, his heart goes out to you right now. This is the kindness of God. His power is un categorizably, unbelievably kind, entirely unmerited. Notice um, that the widow in all of this is pretty much passive. She doesn't say a thing throughout. She hasn't begged for a miracle, she hasn't shown great faith, she hasn't shown her devotion or her um, ability to fulfill every command. She's just there 
because it's not her greatness or her goodness or her compassion, it's Jesus's. This is all from him, flowing from him. Now, of course, she is overcome by grief. We don't expect to do anything, but this is the level to which God cares about us. And it's deeply powerful, isn't it? Deeply powerful. Like, of course, on one level, just because a son has been raised from the dead. But it's powerful on other more layered levels as well. In the um, book of Hebrews, the writer goes on this sort of uh, whistle-stop tour of the biblical heroes from creation to the present day. And what he's doing is evidencing the importance of faith through all these characters. And he does some nice rhetoric where he says, I haven't even got time to tell you about Samuel and David and all these other heroes and all the prophets. And then he goes and tells you about them. Clever. Um, but he says, you know, they conquered kingdoms and they administered justice and they did all of this by faith. But then there's this strange line right in the middle of this, which sort of sticks out like a sore thumb. It's Hebrews 11, verse 35. And it says this, Women received back their dead, raised to life. The writer has been discussing the men of faith from scripture and then is at pains to say though that it was women who received back their dead. Extremely intentional. Now, as you will probably know, to talk about humankind collectively, in the Greek or in uh, Hebrew in fact, you would use um, a masculine term, man or men in the same way that in sort of pre-inclusive language days we would say mankind when really we mean all humankind, uh, all humans. So the fact that he's saying women is, as I said, intentional. He's saying it for a reason and the reason is this, is it because it was women who received back the dead. As I said, there are six resurrection stories in the Bible and the two Old Testament ones are widows receiving their only sons back in Acts, it is Dorcas, who almost certainly was a widow herself, and she is restored to a group of widows, probably those with whom she was kind of in community. And then Jesus raises Lazarus, and Lazarus is returned primarily to Mary and Martha, his sisters. Uh, at the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, the all four Gospels agree on this. The first witnesses, the first people to experience the risen Jesus were women, which is a sort of sign of authenticity. Everyone agrees on it, but you wouldn't make that up because to make it up is actually to weaken your argument because women do not have legal testimony. They have no weight to their testimony. So it's them women again. And then here, of course, we have uh, the son of a widow, the only son of a widow. The only exception is Jairus's daughter. But again, in Mark, he's at pains to say that both father and mother were in the room to receive their daughter back. So the point is this, resurrection in the Bible is almost exclusively for the primary witness or the primary benefit of women. There goes the dishwasher. The reason being that women of the time were most in need of receiving power because they were the ones who had least hold on it. So I don't think uh, we should focus solely on the miraculous nature of the power. Oh my goodness, look at this, he has brought a child back to life. But also not just on the emotional potency of this uh, power, the ability to heal the emotions, but let's dwell on that for a second. This is a woman 
right in the beginnings of grief. She has already lost her husband and now here she is grieving her only child, the only person connected to her. And it's not just a private grief, this is the whole community, a whole crowd of people uh, grieving with her. This is on display and this is um, incredibly raw, powerful lament and grief. And then without any expectation, without ever probably even believing it could happen, this man Jesus walks into the crowd and raises her son to life. The emotion, the, the wonder at it, the questions, the, the joy, he was dead and now he's alive, I had lost everything and now I have it back, it must have been extraordinary. The kindness of God, his power to restore these things, incredible. But it's not just our emotions he comes to heal, it's not just an emotional miracle. It is also a financial, economic, social, societal miracle. Because as soon as this woman becomes a widow and she loses her son, she has to throw herself on the mercy of the community. It is for them to look after her. And there is no necessary expectation that they will. They have to feed her and they have to provide for her and they have to shelter her and they have to clothe her. And she is completely powerless. And yet Jesus comes not just to restore her family to her, not just to restore her son, but to restore her position, to restore her ability through her son to earn money, to be part, to be a meaningful part of society. He restores dignity. And the Christian faith is not just an emotional or a spiritual matter, it is a physical and societal one too. Such is the power of God that he is fully able to restore us and heal all types and all degrees of pain, be it spiritual, emotional, physical, economic, societal, whatever. A um, couple of weeks ago on Zoom, on the prayer ministry call, uh, Hannah and I actually had just come back from holiday and we had said, we are taking this Sunday off because it's the second of our Sundays. So Hannah hadn't wanted to be on the call, but she got um, a message saying we kind of need some more people to pray. So begrudgingly, because you know, Hannah's not really a Christian, she is, don't worry, uh, she went on this call. And she started praying for someone that she'd never met before, she didn't know. Uh, and while she was praying, she felt like God say, um, put your hand on the back of this person's neck. Now, obviously she can't do it, it's on Zoom, but she told her anyway. And so she told her, if I, if I were praying for you in, in person, I would want to put my hand on the back of your neck because I think there's pain there. This person hadn't said anything, but she then started to burst into tears, said she could feel power in uh, the back of her neck and down her spine. And it turns out that she, in 2003, some almost 20 years ago, had had a car accident and um, had chronic debilitating pain ever since. No, matter, no amount of physiotherapy or, or anything else had been able to take this pain away. And in fact, it was getting worse and worse. The reason that she was on the call was because she basically couldn't take it anymore. She felt like this was too much. So she prayed for her and then a couple of days later, um, she wrote to Hannah and she said this, your prayers have released much internal and physical tension over the last days. 
This morning, I woke with very little pain. In fact, I hesitated to move. It feels like this weight that was pressing on my spine has released, like a heaviness is being released within me and around me. I feel the joy of the morning the first time in a long time. And then a couple of weeks later, she gave a bit more detail. When I prayed with you on the 16th, the day of the Zoom call, I was done. I felt trapped by the pain. I could not bear it another moment and surely not for a lifetime. But Hannah, the pain is steadily decreasing with each morning. I've not experienced such relief and lightness in quite some time. I was nervous to write to you because I'm still in shock when I'm able to fully rotate my head from side to side. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? This is the God we serve. And as Jesus identifies with us in our weakness and fills us with his power, so too can we, the recipients of his power, identify those who, like us, are also in pain, those who are also in weakness. And we can ask and pray for God to meet them in power too. So as we close, let's begin where we actually need to begin, each one of us. Let's acknowledge, shall we, wherever we are, whatever loss it is that we are currently experiencing. What is it that you are grieving right now? What is it that you are lamenting? Now, it could be um, a relationship, a job. It could be something very personal to you. It could be actually for other people. It could be for society as a whole. You'll probably know what it is. I wouldn't second guess yourself. And I would try not to avoid the pain because it will be painful. Because loss and death and lament is painful. Grief is painful. These things are painful. So don't expect it not to be. But let's be brave and take courage and bring it to the one person who is uniquely qualified to deal with it. You can, just as you sit or stand wherever you are now, you can um, just say it out in words if you'd like to. Or you could just picture this thing, this loss in your hands, and you could picture yourself just giving it over to him. Hand it over to his kindness, to his love and his compassion. Now, the thing is, he knows it all already. Even the things that we could never tell anyone. Even the things we wouldn't be able to say to any other human being, we can tell him about them. Because he loves us and he knows it. This is the antidote to indulging or feeding our feelings, is giving them to him. And then, having done that, let us ask for his resurrecting power to fill us once again to take these things and what feels like death and loss to be replaced with joy and life. He takes our mourning, he takes our despair and he replaces it with joy. Behold, says the Lord Almighty, I make all things new. Now, we don't get to decide what that looks like, how it looks like, when it looks like. All we do is give him our loss. And it may be that some things will actually need to die or are dying. But he will and he promises to bring life out of that. It may be something completely new. Let's be open to whatever he wants to do, not what we want.
and just as we end there'll be zoom prayer in a minute please join that we'd love to pray for you we've seen incredible things and we continue to see incredible things let's open ourselves to the spirit of god but as we end let me uh, quote this from the prophet joel so i will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the lord your god who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be put to shame then you shall know that i am in the midst of israel i am the lord your god and there is no other my people shall never be put to shame and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so as the music begins, I want to encourage us, let us say together, resurrecting spirit of the living God the one in whom we see infinite, godly, kind power. Come and bring your children to life again. Bring your people to joy again. In Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday. See you on Zoom prayer in a minute. God bless and hopefully see you very soon. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness you give hope you restore every heart